It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. This is a fun theme today, the chariot of the cherubim. I used to, back in uh, the beginnings of Ellerslie, we'd always have a session during the semester called the chariot of the cherubim. This is a very trimmed down, believe me, very, very trimmed down version with slightly different emphases uh, in there, but it really builds well into this muscular Christian idea that we've been going through. And so, so this is a continuation, the next installment in that series. And uh, the last uh, session that we gave in this series was called Harnessed. And to understand that as God captures our life, he wants to, in a sense, take this wild stallion-esque dimension of who we are and bring it under his rule and control without diminishing the beauty or the power or the strength of our stallion-ness but to actually now convert it into something useful for his glory. And so what we see in this, I could have called this message harnessed as well, because that's actually what this whole thing is, but uh, that would be a very boring thing to call it harnessed part two. So as a result, we have the uh, special title of the chariot of the cherubim, which is the same concept, but it's a, it's a different angle on the same thing we just talked about in the last message. So uh, this term, the chariot of the cherubim, actually comes out of 1 Chronicles 28, 18. There is a description of the temple of God and how it is to be built. And, and for the altar of incense, refined gold by weight and gold for the pattern of the chariot of the cherubim that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Right. So there's this picture, and at first it doesn't make a lot of sense, okay? There's certain pieces I'm going to put together for you. It's like I'm going to stick a puzzle piece over here, puzzle piece over here, puzzle piece over here, and then suddenly we put them together. It's like, whoa, that is amazing. So what we see is a picture of the Holy of Holies here. It is being described in how it is to be built, and this portion of the temple, of the, which is in the holiest of all holy places, has two cherubim that stretch out their wings and touch, and it's over the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, we, many of us have heard that before. We know that, but what is this? It's called the pattern of the chariot of the cherubim. That's odd. What a, what's, that's not a chariot. A chariot, we know what a chariot is. It's like a transportation vehicle. It takes something from here to there. It has wheels. It moves about, you know, the... The people that sit in it sit on top, and then the wheels, you know, there's a platform, and you just sort of, you know, mosey around town in that thing. What's this? That's not a chariot. So uh, we're going to take a field trip to heaven. I don't know if we took the field trip earlier uh, in the, the semester, but we're going to do it again. Uh, we have a flying bus out there, and we get in, and uh, we, it's a specialty thing. I mean, it's all bonus thing. Little did you know when you were paying tuition for this training that you were getting that as well. But it takes you into uh, the very heavenly realms where there is the very real temple of God. Okay, everything down here is a shadow of that which is real in heaven. And so we are able to 
take, we only have seconds with this. It's like God has allowed us to come, but he will only give us a few seconds. So we like, you know, it's like 30 seconds. So we're like running across the heavenly fields and to get to the, uh, the temple. We walk into the temple and it's just awe-inspiring. First of all, the moment you come in, you realize your shoes just melt away. You can't even, you know, keep shoes on in a place like this. It is so holy. And as you progress for, further into the very presence of God, it is holy, holy, holy. And what, what you notice about it is it is perfectly pure, perfectly clean. It is orderly. It is right. It smells with such a lovely fragrance. And this is the presence of God. Now, what's amazing about that is you could use your imagination of how glorious this environment is. What's hard for us to recognize is that when Paul says, and by the way, you are that temple down here. In other words, what you see up there, that glory, that majesty, that magnificence, God wants to do that right here inside of you. What? In other words, that is supposed to be made real inside of us. And that's, you know, in my simple definition, I think I would have mentioned it earlier in the semester when I was talking about honor. And I said, honor in its most basic sense is a man becoming as a man ought to become. A woman being as a woman ought to be. It is the human body transformed by God back to its original purpose, what God intended for it, which is to be the caring device of the glory of God. So do you not know, says Paul, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So that last word in the, in the whole sentence there is God's. It's apostrophe S. In other words, you're not God. No, you are possessed by God. That apostrophe S means possessed. You are possessed by the living God. You belong. Your body, your spirit belong to him. So glorify God in your body. It belongs to him. So that's the commission. That's what Paul is saying. Do you not recognize what he has done? He has purchased you and he has made you his home. And do you understand what it means to be the home of God? Do you understand what the Old Testament teaches about the home of God? Because whatever it's teaching in the Old Testament about the home of God, you can begin to transport that into your understanding. Because this is what God is calling you to be. So the Jewish take on holiness with an Eric twist. Did I introduce, it may have been the classic students, but did I read through uh, what Joseph Telushkin uh, said about holiness? Did I, did I do that earlier in the semester? Uh, so there was a rabbi named Joseph Telushkin. I remember reading it, oh, this is like 15 years ago, and it had a significant impact on my life, and he, it was the Jewish understanding on holiness. So you just have a Jewish rabbi who doesn't necessarily accept Christ as the Messiah, right? But he's talking about holiness, and the Jewish perspective on holiness is so far upgraded from ours as Christians, we have such a pathetic uh, notion of holiness that we just, it sort of just means, ah, wow, you know, to many of us. But to a Jew, it is, it is something very significant, and it is what defines them. To the Jews, they would say the chief element or description of the Jewish people compared to all the other people of the earth is holiness. They are holy, everyone else is not. And that's the way they would look at it. They're the holy people. And so what does that mean to them? So 
This has a bit of an Eric twist, but this is the same concept, okay? You take all the universe, and it is all set apart to reveal the glory of God. So the whole thing is holy. If you want to take, you know, just the word holy, the whole thing is set apart to reveal God's glory. But out of all the universe, out of all the galaxies, if you want to say it that way, there is one galaxy that is chosen, selected as holy. And it's holier than all the other galaxies, which some scientists have estimated to have 200 billion galaxies. Out of all the galaxies, there is one that has been chosen through which to reveal the glory of God. And out of that galaxy, out of the solar system in our galaxy that we understand, you know, there's all these different planets. Remember when Pluto, the good old days when Pluto used to be a planet? But there's one planet that is more holy than all the others in all the galaxy and all the universe, and that is Earth. And, you know, that's a strange thought because Earth is very smallish compared to some of the other planets, even in our galaxy, right? So it's like, wow, why do you choose that one? But out of all of them, Earth is the most holy. Why? Because God has chosen it through which to reveal his glory. He says, there, right there, I will reveal my glory. But out of all of earth, even though all of earth is holy because it's been selected by God and set apart to reveal his glory, out of earth there is a territory or piece of property that God has highlighted as being more holy. It's called the Holy Land. And we understand it as Israel. So Israel is separated out as the most holy place out of the most holy planet, out of the most holy galaxy in the most holy universe. So it's set apart of set apart places to reveal God's glory. And you know that out of all of Israel, there are places that are more holy than others? For instance, there's a place that is more holy than any other place in all of Israel, and it's Jerusalem. It's called the holy city. And so out of all the holy nation, out of all the holy earth, there is a holy city. And in that place, God says, and I'll reveal my glory right there. And you think of all his great works that he did. Think about all the things God has done in Jerusalem. I mean, this is like death, burial, resurrection, right there. This is the second coming. will be right there. I mean, this is a huge place in all of God's creation, all of God's universe. It's right there. This little small zone on earth, okay, is more holy than all the holy land, which is more holy than all the earth, okay? It is a holy of holy of holy. You, you see the gradients of holiness. And then out of all that city, do you know that there's a place that's more holy? than anywhere else in the city? It's called the Temple Mount. It's literally the place where the temple of God is built that to the Jew is more holy than all the holy city, which is more holy than all the holy land, which is more holy than all the holy earth, which is more holy than all the holy galaxy. So in other words, God has selected a territory, a property, and he says right there is where my presence will be. But you know that in the temple of God there's a place that's more holy than all the other territory in all the temple? And it's called, very appropriately, the Holy of Holies. So, the Jews, to them, out of all the people of the earth, I mean, all the people technically are set apart to reveal God's glory. The Jews don't always agree with that, because they say the Gentiles, all most of us in here, are dogs, and you know we're fit for nothing else but to fuel hell's fires. However, to God... Everyone is holy. However, he selected out of all the people of this earth a people. We know it as Israel, the Jews, but this people has been 
separated out and made holy, more holy than any others. And the Jews would brag about this. Okay? Hey guys, we're the chosen people. We're the holy people of God. But do you know that of all the Jews, because there's 12 tribes, right? That there is one tribe that is more holy than all the others. And it's the tribe of Levi. It is set apart out of the set apart people as to have a very specific role. And do you know that out of the tribe of Levi, there's a group of people that is more holy than all the rest of the tribe of Levi? And it's called the priests. And they are considered more holy than all the tribe of Levi, which is more holy than all the other tribes, which is more holy than all the people of the earth. And did you know that out of the priests, there is one that is more holy than all the others? And he is known as the high priest. So to the Jews, there are uh, they have a different calendar than we have. I think it was 360 days uh, a year. But out of all the days of the year, which are all marked as holy, because they're all uh, a day the Lord has made, let us be glad and rejoice in it, right? They're all the days of the calendar are holy in that sense. However, there's certain days that are more, more holy than any others, okay? First of all, we have the Sabbath, and that is more holy than all the other days of the week. But then there are holy days that are more holy than any others, and typically they're understood as the feasts. And so you have these feasts throughout the years. Have you ever heard, heard the word holiday? It's holy day, okay? It's very special occasions. And this is a God idea. And so what we see is throughout the Jewish calendar that there are days that are more holy than any others. And did you know that there is one day to the Jew that is more holy than any other holy day in all the Jewish calendar, and that's the Day of Atonement. And out of all the languages of the earth that are all meant to bring glory to God. Every lip and every tongue should speak forth the praises of God. But out of all the languages, there is one that is more holy than others. Remember, this is a Jew, Jewish perspective because those of us that speak English, of course, think it's English. But to the Jew, they would say it's Hebrew. It is the language of God. They would say, this is what we'll speak in heaven. And so to the Jew, they would say that Hebrew is the most holy of, of, of languages. But did you know that out of that language, there is words that are more holy than any other, and that's that which is within the Holy Bible. And that which is in the Bible is more holy than just any other word in Hebrew. But then out of the entire Bible, did you know that there are certain words that are more holy than any words in the Bible? And those are the Ten Commandments, the very words written by God's very finger first. It's actually the initiation of the entire Bible, if you want to say it that way, where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and God on tablets of stone with his own finger writes down the most holy of words in Hebrew. But did you know that to the Jew, there's one word that is more holy than any word in the entire Ten Commandments. In fact, it is so holy that they can't even speak it out loud. And that is the ineffable name of God. So what we have is a picture amongst the Jews of holy, holy, holiness. And to the Jews, they recognize these holy, holy, holinesses coming together on one day of the year, known as the Day of Atonement, when the most holy man enters into the most holy place and speaks the most holy word. Isn't that incredible? So... To the Jews, have you ever heard the, the legend that the, the high priest has a, like a rope or a chain attached to his ankle and if he comes into the presence of God and is unclean, well then he'll fall down dead and then they'll pull him out. Okay, there's, it, it doesn't say that in the Bible. It doesn't mean it wasn't true. It could be. It's just more legend, Christian legend, than it is Jewish legend. However, you know what this rabbi says? 
which again isn't in scripture, but it's fascinating. He says, of all days, of all moments, the moment of entry into the presence of God by the high priest was dreaded. For if this high priest had even a spot of sin upon his soul, it's not just that he would be destroyed, but the entire universe would be destroyed. Because he was entering into the holy, holy, holy presence of God. Okay, now that puts a whole new perspective on it. In other words, the degree that the Jew will revere holiness is so much above the way we as Christians oftentimes will treat it. We traipse into the holy of holies without any comprehension of what we are doing. So can you understand why the Jew would struggle in looking at us as Christians when we're like, burp, scratch. Yeah, I'm the temple of the living God. We're like, and the Jew would look at us and go, you have no idea what you're messing with. You have no idea what you're talking about. God would never profane himself to make you his temple. Can't you understand why a Jew would say that? The most holy of all holy places in all the universe, you're declaring, that's me. Yeah, that's me. Burp, scratch. Do you, you follow why the Jew struggles when, he, when they witness Christianity? Now, what's amazing is God has condescended to do exactly that, to actually take that which is unfit us and make us the most holy of all holy places in the universe, the place where his very presence dwells. But it would do us good to tremble a little, to have a measure of the fear of God, don't you think, in understanding what is actually taking place here. We are literally becoming the chosen territory in all the universe for God's very presence. He says that one right there. And the rest of the Jews are like, you've got to be kidding. You're going to pick a Gentile and make him your home? Can you understand why that would be so preposterous to a Jew? And yet, it's the gospel. It is the gospel of grace, and I want us to freshly cherish it. So this is serious business, this temple of the living God stuff. You are the temple of the living God. Whoa! So introducing the cherubim. First, what are they? So if you've ever heard the word cherub, a cherub is not what many of us have in our, our minds, because if you, if you think about uh, some of the ancient ideas in the, I don't know if it's Greek tradition, we could blame, blame uh, our Greek uh, scholar in here for some of these uh, funny thoughts, but I don't know if I can blame uh, him for it or not, but the cherub that is all pudgy and, you know, shoots out arrows with hearts on them, and so when his, when his, when his arrow strikes you, you fall in love with someone. Have you ever seen that? Okay, that's like a cherub. They're little fat babies with little loincloths on. Okay, that is not what a cherub is in Scripture. Okay, what we're about to go into is going to be a bit Narnian, okay? Everything I'm going to say to you is actually biblical, and you can study it. I mean, it's truly profound, and yet most of us are like, what in the, are you serious? Uh, yeah, I am. So first, what are they? So this is with help from Ezekiel chapter 1. We know because of Ezekiel chapter 10 that what he is witnessing, what Ezekiel is witnessing in chapter 1 are cherubim. Okay, so you can study Ezekiel 10 to, to see this. However, Ezekiel 1 is one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible, and most people stop after Ezekiel 1 and never read Ezekiel 2. 
because it is so strange they don't know what to do with it, okay? And this really is a trip into Narnia. So these cherubim, they are living creatures. They look like men as far as their bodily structure. What we're going to see in, this, in chapter 10 is that they have, it's called the face of a cherub, which seems to be, if you put chapter 1 and 10 together, the face of an ox. Okay, so because these characters have four faces, and one of their faces is a man. But I'm not sure if the man face is on the front. I think the ox face, at least according to chapter 10, would be on the front. But they have four faces, the face of an eagle, lion, ox, and man. They have calf's feet, but man's hands with four wings. They glow white and have the appearance of burning, or the appearance of burning coals of fire. The movement of their wings sounds like mighty rushing waters, and they move from here to there like a flash of lightning. Whoa. These are extraordinary creatures. In other words, we could say it, if I could just summarize it very quickly, they are the chief of God's creation. Okay, I know we thought we were. But this is, you know, this is before God created the heavens and the earth. Before he created an eagle, he had a cherub. So if you could say it this way, an eagle has the face of a cherub. An ox has the face of a cherub. A lion has the face of a cherub. A man has the face of God and a cherub has shares in that face. In other words, there's a part reflection of God in what a cherub is, but then there's also this other stuff mixed in, which is really odd. Four faces. Could you imagine? Uh, do you feed four faces? Like, say you have a sandwich, you know, and you're in, and the eagle's like, yeah, and you're like, no, it's my turn. And so then the man gets to eat it, you know, and the next time it's the ox like, when you sleep. Do you sleep like a bat, you know, hanging upside down? Because you have four faces. One of you is going to be planted in the pillow. Okay? You, you follow me? There's some, there's some unique challenges that we're running into here uh, with this whole, whole setup. But uh, there's this, this four-winged creature. Did I even say that on there? I don't see the four wings. Oh, no, it does say it. With man's hands and four wings. So the seraphim, as described in Isaiah 6, seem to have six wings. But the, the cherubim have four wings, and they have the hands of a man, feet of a calf. It's like, whoa, this is like, this is Narnia, okay? Actually, we could say Narnia is a little Ezekiel-esque because this is real. This is true. Ezekiel witnesses this. Moses witnesses this because what he sees in the mountain of God is he sees the pattern of the temple. He sees the pattern of the chariot of the cherubim. And therefore, they build the temple after what Moses saw. Moses witnessed this. So does Ezekiel. Okay, so Ezekiel in chapter 1 is seeing something. Something is coming down out of the heavens while he's sitting in, it's in the, during the Babylonian captivity. He's sitting by the river Kabar, and whoa, something happens. What does he see? He sees something come out of heaven, okay? And he's describing it in detail. That's where we're getting these descriptions in the first place. What is their job? Listen to this in 2 Samuel. This is one of the strangest scriptures in the Bible. And he rode, speaking of God, upon a cherub and did fly. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind. What? Wait a minute. Let, let's review. <laughs> God is flying on a cherub? What is that? Yeah. It's a chariot. You see, there is a device that God has in the heavenlies 
that carries his presence. I, I know this is going to sound totally bizarre, but I'm just telling you what it says. And on a cherub, he did fly. So what do we know? Well, we don't know a lot. And that's part of what I'm going to say is, even though I'm intriguing you at great degrees to start studying cherubim, God seems to go out of his way to say that isn't the focus of Scripture. I mean, it's, he drops it in there in Ezekiel, and we're like, what is that? And then he leaves. He doesn't say any more. He just says, okay, you got that. I just need you to know that, but for this reason. What do we know? They are carriers of God's glory. These guys carry the presence of God. They carry God's glory. So right as you start to get interested in these cherubim, the writer of Hebrews in, in the New Testament is going in detail through the significance of how God has built the priesthood, how he's built the temple, and how it showcases Christ, right? And he gets right to this point of the chariot of the cherubim. And we're like, okay, we, all of us are waiting with bated breath to hear more. We want to understand this. We want to hear more. Teach us more about the cherubim. And this is what the writer says. And over at the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, and we're like, okay, now tell us of which we cannot now speak particularly. <laughs> you even see it in Scripture. It's like, that isn't what Scripture is about. It is not the study of angelic creatures. It is the study of Jesus Christ. I know what you're wanting to hear right now. We're not going there. The writer of Hebrews is like prohibited from going any further. I cannot talk about that right now, guys. That isn't what this book is about. It is about Jesus and so I want you to see that in this. It's profound because everything I'm saying is so fascinating. It's like mental candy. And you start chewing. I was like, oh, I need to know more. And God says, no, you don't. You have what you need. Now I want you to stay focused. The chariot of the cherubim. What is it? So if I'm going to use Ezekiel 1 and I'm going to build using the rest of Ezekiel, I'm going to come to a conclusion, especially when you take that Chronicles passage before, that what we're dealing with, it seems to be a mobile, flying, <laughs> holy of holies. It's like the holy of holies gone mobile. That's what it is. It has a platform, which is called a, oh, what's that called? Uh, what is that term in Genesis 1? Firmament, okay? It's called a firmament. It's like a platform layer in the chariot that looks like terrible crystal. Does that help? in understanding what it looks like. You see, every time in the Bible you see the throne of God, what you're going to see is something gushing forth. It's a river that gushes forth out, of the th out from under the throne of God. When it grows mobile, what you have is it's almost like a frozen river. Isn't that weird? It's, it's crystal. And as crystal sea, crystal river, it's what gushes forth out from under the throne. So it actually matches, it parallels, but this one's flying. This one's not stationary. This one's flying. So it has a platform that looks like terrible crystal. There is a sapphire throne sitting upon the platform. And on that throne sits God in all his glory. The chariot is carried by four cherubim. So, as you would imagine, wheels on a, chari on a chariot. Well, you have four cherubim that are carrying this. You picture them on their, on their backs. They're, they're, they're carrying the platform of God's glory. The crystal sea seems to be upon them, and then the throne of God is upon that. 
and they are flying. And next to each of the four cherubim are four wheels. This is where it gets a little strange, guys. That appeared to be wheels within wheels. So I should say that appear. I don't know if it is past tense, but it is present tense too. You have these wheels that are next to each of the four cherubim that have wheels within wheels. I don't know how to draw that, okay? Wheels within wheels. But that's what it says. And to add even a greater degree of weird to it, the wheels are covered all over with eyes. Now, technically, in Ezekiel 10, it says that the cherubim are also covered all over with eyes, but I'm not going to mention that here just because I already feel like we've gone far enough, even though I just did mention it. <laughs> you didn't hear it. So here's what I want you to focus on, because what I want you to catch is I'm going to tie some things together. First of all, we have a holy of holies that has gone mobile. It is carried by cherubim. Paul in the New Testament is going to say something that is going to shock us all. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? You are the place of his presence. You are, okay, brace yourselves, guys, the chariot that carries his glory. You're the mobile holy of holies now. That is so utterly preposterous that we can't hardly swallow it. Wait a minute, God. What I see in Ezekiel is something so glorious, so amazing that it causes dread and fear for anyone that would witness it. Now God is moving into this, and he's saying, yes, I would like to be carried by that. You're, you're downgrading from cherubim to me? to us the chariot instead of the chariot of the cherubim it's the chariot of the church we are the carrying devices the mobile holy of holies look at what it says about how the cherubim carried that glory and they went everyone straight forward whither the spirit was to go they went and they turned not when they went wherever the spirit went they would go these are the most powerful creatures in the world, in the universe, if you want to say it that way. They are the wisest. They are the strongest. They are the most beautiful of all of God's creation, if you want to say it that way. You know that Lucifer is a cherub? Yeah. He was a cherub that covered. So, in other words, he was in the most intimate of places. In this very scene that we're seeing, he was there. He understands this very intimately. So you understand he understands how to sabotage it as well. He knows the significance of everything we're talking about. He's a cherubim. See, the cherubim, we, we think very highly of men and women. Okay, we, we think it's the chief of everything. However, these angelic creatures are so extraordinary. And the cherubim themselves, if you want to say it this way, are built not to just rule little towns and villages, but to rule worlds. They have the power, the strength, the might, the wisdom, the cunning to do it. We can't even figure out how to rule our own bodies. You follow me? So God has been carried by cherubim. And these cherubim are so 
able in and of themselves to do things, so much more able than we are to do things, and yet look how they respond to the Spirit of God. Whatever the Spirit of God asks, they say yes. Whatever he, wherever he goes, they will go. Whithersoever the Spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their Spirit to go. When they went, they went upon their four sides. They turned not as they went, but to the place whither the head looked, they followed it. They turned not as they went. The most powerful, most beautiful, most marvelous creatures were wholly submitted to the living God. Whatever he said, they said yes. Wherever he went, they went. Doesn't matter where he leads them, the answer is yes. How are we carrying the glory of God? Is it like the cherubim carrying? In Revelation, it speaks of the church. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. I, I don't know about you, but I want to be in that congregation. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. It doesn't matter if he goes to a cross. It doesn't matter if he goes to a prison cell. It doesn't matter if he goes into East Timor, into Iraq. It doesn't matter where he heads. The answer is yes. We are the carriers of the glory of God. I can't explain why God would humble himself to go from his mighty glorious position of being carried by cherubim to making us his chariot. His decision, guys. One thing we know about our God is he is humble. And he is proving that in and through the gospel. He is proving it in a profound way. It's a huge downgrade, but God has traded in cherubim for <clears throat> us. Now, if we were God, I don't know that we would do this. But praise God, we're not God. He's holy, which means he's unlike us. He's otherly. And his thought processes and his thinking, he has chosen weak things of this world. He's chosen us through which to reveal his power, his glory, and his majesty. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will be their God and they shall be my chariot. <laughs> That's one way you can look at it. I will be their God and they will be my chariot. Well, God, I thought you had a great chariot. You had one of those like Mercedes-Benz uh, Lexus versions. And uh, down here, this is more like one of those go-karts, you know, that is fixed together by a 10-year-old. Uh, that's us. And God's going from this massively, I mean, high-end vehicle to this thing that you're sort of concerned the wheels are going to pop off. <laughs> That's us. I mean, no, I don't want to offend any of us in here to say that we're, you know, not that impressive, but let's just be honest. We're not that impressive. I mean, we know ourselves really well, and we are so prone to having wheels pop off. We are so prone to have our entire transmission go and fall to the ground. And God says, that, that's my chosen vehicle right there. But God, we have problems. We have leaks, oil everywhere. I want that as my vehicle. God, why would you choose something this weak? It's my plan. I'm going to show my strength by being carried by that. 
He has chosen us. And get this, it's not just that he is trying to prove something to the heavenlies. It's that he actually wants us. Even with our wheel-popping potential, he wants us and he loves us. He's like, this is actually what I desire, guys. I designed you to carry me. So would you allow me to be God in your life? How are we supposed to carry this sapphire throne? When they went, they went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went. Here's what I want you to begin to grasp in the Christian life. This life is not your own. It belongs to him. He leads it. What he desires to speak, your tongue agrees. Where he desires to look, you look and you see what he wants you to see. Your body is not your own. Where he wants to lead your body in this life, you say yes. For it is his body, not yours. And he wants to carry his glory, his message into this earth. Your job is to agree. Your job is to give him place. To allow him to take this chariot known as you. We are a chariot corporately, but you are an individual carrying device. And that you would be willing to say yes, Lord, wherever he desires to take you. So in Exodus 29, and this is our final slide, by the way. In Exodus 29, there is a picture, and it's, it's always been one of the most rich, satisfying, and beautiful pictures of what it means to come unto God with this body and say, yours, Lord. So I want us to recognize we're, we're, we're taking this chariot that has always carried our glory, our agenda, into this earth. And God says, I want that chariot. I've purchased it. And I am choosing that chariot, you, to now carry my glory instead of yours. I want to do something with your chariot that is otherworldly. Would you allow me to have it? What are you going to do with it? Does it matter? Does it matter what God wants to do with it? Most of us want to check off once we have the full disclosure. It's like, so you tell me what you want to do with it, then I'll say yes or no. He says, I purchased it. Will you trust me? Will you trust that I desire to do good things in and through this chariot? I desire to bear witness of my glory, to reveal the manifold wisdom of God unto the heavenly realms, but I need your chariot. And so we pull up, and there's a certain preparatory process, sort of like a lubin oil at Grease Monkey. There's like a preparation, it's a consecration of the priests in Exodus 29 that we see. You see, we are the temple of the living God. So we are, I mean, when self is capitalized in our life, that's sin. When we make this chariot about us, this body about us and our glory, that is sin. But when self lowercases, when we take the S in self and we bend, it, we bend our knee and say, God, you take the capital position. Self is still there. In other words, we're a priest in a temple. Who's the capital in that temple? God, presence of God in the Holy of Holies. However, the priest, you and I, 
are still called to minister in that temple. We're still in it. We're not kicked out because God moved in. We are called to now minister and to serve in this temple or in this chariot. And so we have a consecration of priests in the Old Testament, which is, that's us. This is us for our job description, to minister in the temple of God, to, in a sense, attend to the chariot and all of its function. Uh Uh-oh, guys, so what's going to happen? So Aaron, the high priest, they kill a bull, uh, and they open up that bull, and, I mean, it's, it's, it's killed. Its blood is, is given up for this very purpose, which is an incredible picture. Aaron, picture the high priest, blood of uh, a ram or a bull. This is like a picture of, of the Christ given up himself. So then each priest must come before the high priest, basically to say, all right, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to serve on God's terms. So then there are three touch points where Aaron will take from the blood of that bull and he will smear it on the right ear of the priest, on the right thumb of the priest, and on the right great toe of the priest. And we can say, all right, this is as weird as Ezekiel 1. There's a lot of odd stuff in the Bible, okay? I have to admit, but it all means something. It's all done very purposely if you will listen. If you just get weirded out, you miss all the profoundness of what it is saying. If you listen, it's amazing. So, you're, st- you're putting your chariot before the living God right now. And God says, um, I would like to consecrate you for the purpose of carrying my glory. Could I have your right ear? What does that mean? Well, an ear, of course, is where you hear. It's where you receive command. So when you smear the right ear, the right side of the body is a signal, in, it's a symbol in the heavenly realms of authority, of power, of control. And so when we give our right side, what are we doing? We're giving up control. We're giving control to the one who should have it, who is God Almighty. So, yes, Lord, you can have my right ear. So what does that mean? When you pierce an ear, do you remember the bondservant in the Old Testament? They pierce his right ear. Why? So that he has an ear for his master. That means whatever his master asks, his answer ahead of time is yes. When you have a consecrated ear, that means you have a pre-decided yes, Lord. You're not going to think about it in the future when he asks. You're thinking about it right now. And you're saying, yes, is my answer. Well, I haven't even asked you anything yet. Yes, I know, but my answer will be yes. It's the same as the cherubim. They had a pre-decided yes, Lord. So will you, res- will you submit your right ear unto the living God? So then Aaron smears it with blood. And then they ask for the right thumb. Now, you could probably guess what the right thumb would be symbolic of. First of all, the right arm, the right hand, is symbolic of control and power. God saves us with his right hand. Okay, so this is the saving arm of God, and God says, could I have your right arm? Very specifically, your right thumb. What is a thumb? It's control. If you lose your thumb, you lack control. When that thumb on the right arm is a symbol of the control of your life. And God says, could I have that right thumb? So that's the question for all of us right now. Can he have our right thumb? Lord, I want you to have my right thumb. Smear it with blood. So Aaron takes the blood and smears it. 
And then, yes, it seems a little strange. We have to take off our shoe and our sock. And, and then he says, I'd like that right toe. What's a toe of all things? Well, when you go into this life, you lead with that toe. <laughs> it's a sim- symbol of where you head, where you go. Are you willing to go where he leads? Not where you desire, not where is comfortable, but where he leads. Wherever he steers this chariot, are you willing to go in that direction? Right ear, right thumb, right big toe. The right side of your body, control. This is what it means to be harnessed. You are a carrier of the glory of the Most High God. Are you willing to do this thing God's way, or do you still have your agenda in this life? Christianity, in our modern day, has been diluted down to the level where we can have books coming out which say, your best life now. That say, it's all about you. What do you crave? What do you desire? The great Amway sales pitch, I've had it happen to me many times, is what kind of car do you want to drive, Eric? We can get it for you. It's an appeal to self. What does self want? You could be a Christian. You could be moral. You could be a conservative Republican. And you could have all this. See, as long as you dot this I, dot this I, dot this I, then you could still live your life for yourself. That's not how Christianity works. Simply put, that's not what the gospel does to us. The gospel alters the control position of our life and demotes self. We're no longer we reasoning from what would be beneficial to us. We reason from what is beneficial to his glory. We are like the cherubim. We carry a chariot no matter where it leads. No matter where it goes, no matter what it costs our life, our answer is yes. So, I want us to each evaluate if we want to move in the direction of where God is taking us or if we want to fight it and hold on to our agenda. You hold on to your agenda and you wither. You give up your agenda, you give up your life, and you find it. God wants to lead you. He wants to do something in your life which is so far beyond anything you probably ever dreamed or imagined, but you have to let him have the controls. Let's pray for that. Father, We need you to take the helm. We need you to hold the high position. We need you to take that seat on the sapphire throne. Lord, I pray that you would take this chariot. Take our right ear, our right thumb, and our right great toe and smear them with blood. We belong to you, Lord Jesus. Lock, stock, and barrel. What you desire to do in this life, our answer is yes, Lord. It's in the precious name that we say this, pray this, and ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellersley campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.